You're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. And today on the podcast, I have a music maker. His name is John Duffy. And I've actually said his name on this podcast several times. I feel like this episode has been uh, long overdue that we would have the actual creator of the music for this podcast on this podcast, but he has a lot more to talk about. John and I go way back around the local music scene, and we're going to be talking a lot about that, as well as uh, some of the other stuff he's into, like analog synthesizers. Thanks for tuning in. John, that's the music you made. It sounds great. Thank you for playing it. (laughs) I think listeners should really know that before this podcast had anything, it had a theme song. I'm talking about before we had microphones, cables, a mixer, it had a theme song. That's great. I... Because, John, you are actually here at the library. You were providing ambient music to an art reception. And I said, John, I would really love to start a podcast one day. But what's a podcast without music? And then you said, how about a theme song? <laughs> right. But you had some stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It just seemed right. You know, like I, I could envision a kind of, um, you know, kind of jumpy boppy jumpy boppy theme song and i'm not a huge podcast listener myself but there are a couple that i really enjoy tuning into and you know you establish a tone you establish a vibe and it's something that regular listeners can really identify with you know when they hear that song they're like ah yes right and you know it's brevity you give us just a quick 40 second in and out kind of thing but I can't help but start geeking out with you about just theme songs in general. We've we've often, you and I have often talked about BJ Lederman, the guy behind all the NPR music. Yeah, love his work. Yeah. Love his work. I, I was actually thinking about this too. Like, you know, what is it about theme songs that, that I, I really enjoy? I feel like it's kind of, I'm reminded of this little anecdote that, that George Saunders uh, talked about. He's a famous American short story writer and he was on a like late night TV talk show and he said that there's something like, in a short story, it's kind of like a knock-knock joke that when somebody says knock-knock, you know in about 15 or 20 seconds, like if it works, you're going to laugh. Right. And if it doesn't work, you're probably going to be disappointed and you're going to let that person know. Right. But I, I feel like in a in a musical sense, the theme song kind of works in a similar way. You hear like a, like a drum fill or some kind of intro thing, like, you know, five seconds, maybe even even three or two seconds, you hear some really identifiable instrument, sound, little riff thing, and you know, like, okay, it's on. And then, you know, you've really, as a writer of those things, you've got, you know, at the most, I feel like 30 seconds and then you're into it. Right. Yeah. I was just thinking of all the several examples, like it is the mood establisher. You might start an episode of Stranger Things and you watch the first two minutes and you're not sure you're into it. You're not sure you're into your Stranger Things mood. And then that 30 second theme song comes in after the intro and suddenly you're there. You're in the mood. Uh, yeah, I yeah. love Stranger Things. Um, I've, I've never seen the show, but mm-hmm. I love Survive. They're the group yeah. that uh, that created that. And their story is so funny because they were just a bunch of guys in, I think they're from Austin or something, just a bunch of guys in a garage hanging out with synths and making kind of spooky music. And all of a sudden, just the role of chance, they got this gig. And once the show became popular, they went on tour. I got a chance to see them when they were at L Club and it was sold out. And it was just incredible to see the kind of response that this band got just from writing this theme song. Right. I have, I'm not really familiar with another, like a a contemporary theme song that is, that has, has achieved that level of visibility. Like those guys really tapped into something with the, with Stranger Things. Right. Not since the eighties have we really seen that. 
Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was actually just talking to my friend Mark the other day about how my two favorite theme songs are number one, uh, Perfect Strangers. I don't know if you remember that. (laughs) Hold on. Before this podcast goes any further, John Duffy, I have said several times that the greatest theme song ever created in the history of human art is Perfect Strangers. It's I, I don't understand what it is about that that is so, so satisfying, but the melody is there. You know, there's a there's a brand of 80s theme songs that not only give you this like soaring melody, but it also they contain these funny lyrics that weirdly tell you about like the soul of the show. Right. So Perfect Strangers is all about like like let's work together and achieve the American dream. And then you see this little montage of shots about like Belky coming to Chicago or whatever. And oh, it's just so satisfying. Here's the and the thing melody is, just gets stuck in your head. It's got I think it's got a little harmonica curling in at the start of it. But yes, it, yes, it does. And it feels there's like a yeah. There's there's a harmonica, and then there's like a little mini drum fill, and you're like, mm-hmm. get ready. And it, then there's something about it that feels down to earth and and homey and very everyman, but it also feels like it was almost a cut from a Rocky movie because absolutely it's a building yeah. running montage kind of a song. Uh, yeah. And then anytime that I stand up for. Uh, Perfect Strangers, and I know you have another one to mention, but anytime I have, everyone has said, yeah, Perfect Strangers is pretty good, but have you heard Taxi? <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> what was the other one for you? Uh, it wasn't Taxi. Okay. It was, this is kind of a weird one, but it is, uh, this is, I think, late 80s, early 90s, but it's the theme to the show Doogie Hauser MD. Oh, I don't remember that one. I've seen, I remember watching the show as a child, but. Yeah, I mean, the show itself, I mean, it's kind of a silly show. It's about, the title pretty much tells you what it is. It's like a 16-year-old kid who is like some genius and gets gets a medical degree. And then right. he's like a practicing doctor, but he's also like going through puberty or something. <laughs> so, uh, but the theme song is, unlike Perfect Strangers, uh, it's all instrumental. And you know, if anybody had a keyboard in the late eighties or early nineties, like even really like the kind you could get at Kmart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I say this because I had a keyboard that I got from Kmart, the electric piano, the generic electric piano sound on all of those keyboards. It's like a general MIDI preset. That's the sound of the theme song. And I felt really excited because I watched the show regularly when I was, I don't know, like nine or maybe even younger than that. But I also had this keyboard and I would hit you know, electric piano. And then I would try to plunk out the theme song, which is, it's not a very complicated theme song. You like, you don't have to have any sort of piano skill to play it, but it's really plunky and basic, but there's something really satisfying about it. You hear those opening notes. It's just octaves like boom, 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 boom. And you're like, yeah, Doogie, take me there. Right. Mood setting. You know, John, I think you are already starting to answer what was going to be my first question, and that was how you got into music. And I can't get over the image of watching you in your little room playing along to Doogie Howser. That's a formative moment. But uh, yeah, you, was, you have yeah. been in you've been in bands, you've been a musician. Can you talk about that part of your life, sir? Absolutely. You know, originally I was not a uh, I'm still not like a piano player. I don't really have a lot of keyboard skills, but, you know, I think my ear is pretty good. And, you know, I've got a kind of intuition, you know, like melodies. I just I'm really drawn to melodies. But I originally started as a guitar player. When I was in the seventh grade, I was living with my mom. My folks had split up and we had, uh, she got cable. And this is a really big deal because oh, she's a, a very moment. busy person, worked really hard. And 
uh, I was watching MTV like all day long and I would watch like liquid television, you know, Eon Flux or Beavis and Butthead all the time. And uh, there was a, a video for the Tom Petty song, You Don't Know How It Feels, which if you're not familiar with that song, it's, or the video, he's like, on this kind of rotating platform. And there are all these things behind him that are really distracting. They're sort of like these kind of vaudeville acts where it's like, you've got this strong man looking person and then like an acrobat and there's a fire or something, but he's just there as the background is rotating around him with a cowboy hat and an acoustic guitar singing this song. And I remember just watching that, like, I don't know, in the afternoon one day thinking, gee, you know, like, I think I could do that. And I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to try that, you know, like, you know, my life was kind of tumultuous at that point. And I was like, you know, if I can just kind of play the guitar like this guy on TV, maybe that would be cool. And then in the eighth grade, you know, I had some buddies who also had guitars, but didn't know how to play them, which mm-hmm. was my situation. And we decided like, it just makes sense to form a band without really knowing how to play any of these instruments. Mm-hmm. We're just going to figure it out. So we had three guys who played guitar and then our friend Brent, who we knew from band class, because mm-hmm. he, he didn't play the drums, so to speak. He just like, was the guy who played the snare drum. We later we later played together in the marching band, but at this time it was like eighth grade school band. Okay. And we were like, hey, you know, do you want to join our band and like play the snare drum? It's three guys with guitars <laughs> and we don't really know what we're doing, but like, let's let's do it. And he was like, yeah, okay, cool. And he became this really great friend of ours and and we played with him for a long time. Um, So that's really how it began. You know, that's we awesome. just, we, we, we all worked together. We all supported each other, figured it out and grew from there and had some, you know, just really formative, memorable experiences in high school and into college. Yeah. So you were kind of pinballing around the music scene right around the same time as me. And you were in Detroit, you were in Ann Arbor, you were in Ypsilanti. You kind of really were immersed in the music scene. Do you have any, I guess, just a comments, memories, appreciations about it? Because you were really... I'm making you sound like an old guy who's not in the scene anymore, but you were really in the mix there for a while. But, you know, it was a really hotbed of activity around here in the music scene between 05 and 2015. And, and you and yeah. I were right there, right there in it. Do you have any thoughts on that, the local music scene or the arts and community scene that you were that you were proverbially pinballing around? You know, it was just such an incredible time. I hate to be like nostalgia guy because I think it's still an incredible time. Yeah, it's very different. But, you know, one of the things that I really liked the most about it was how... And, and I still feel this way. It's just how out there it got. Yeah. And and how um, accommodating people were, for the most part, of right. just like out there ideas. Right. Um, you know, you could think of the wildest thing in your mind. And then, you know, if you had some creative buddies who were with you for the ride, like you could bring it to life. And there were spaces in a lot of these communities, especially Detroit, mm-hmm. there are spaces that were that were for that, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I just learned so much, you know, being in a, in a bunch of different bands, like going out to see other, other people play and seeing these really exciting things that they would do. And it was all kind of DIY, you know, people would, would just make stuff in their garage and, and put it on stage, or they would modify their own instruments, or they would record in really unusual ways. Right. They would cover each other's songs, you know, right. and, and we did that too. And it was just like this really welcoming DIY space where people, you know, riffed on each other's ideas. And it was like a yes. And kind of improv thing for years. Very and much the so. thing that it created was just incredible. I also wanted to note, and I think you were kind of touching on this is that it really seemed like we dropped any pretense or preoccupation over 
matching up, I guess what you would say, matching up lineups to the point where, you know, if you were a folk and Americana band, you had to be on an all folk or Americana band. I really feel like if you were a band who saw yourself as an indie rock band, you were maybe on a lineup with a hip hop artist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I was in, I mean, I've been in several different bands. When I was in high school, I was in this kind of like late high school and throughout my college years, I was in this kind of punk group with a, a horn section and we started to- A trombone uh, maybe? Uh, we did have a trombone player. Yeah. We okay. had a trombone, saxophone and trumpet for a little time. And then, but we, you know, we, uh, we booked our own shows. We had a little van and we would just, you know, travel around mid and Southeast Michigan as 18 19 year olds. <laughs> and, you know, I really believe in the transformative power of collaboration and, and the creation of any sort of artistic content, especially for young people. And, you know, I had these experiences myself and I, I've witnessed this in, in other young people because I also work as a high school teacher. But, uh, you know, when I was in the eighth grade and I first started playing guitar, the high school jazz band needed a guitar player. And I, I couldn't play the guitar, but they were like, why don't you just come on stage? And there's like one song that we're playing and you just need to hit this D chord with like a wah pedal. <laughs> and if you can do that one thing, then we'll have you in the high school band. And I did that. And I was so, so nervous. Oh, and like, yeah. I stayed up all night the night before. I just like, um, it was like, I was shaking and it was really, really difficult, oh, but I did it. I was like 14. And then, you know, fast forward four years, I think I was 18 or maybe I was 19, but the band that I was in, we were booking our own Midwestern weekend tour thing. We played in a squat house in Kent, Ohio at a place called the Mantis, which was the back storage room of a paint store. <laughs> and we drove down there and like nobody's parents had a, had a problem with this. They were like, Oh yeah, you're going to spend the weekend, drive around Ohio and play in your little band. Yeah, whatever. Just let me know when you get home. You know? <laughs> but we went to this place and we were on stage and we played with a goth DJ. His name was DJ Morpheus. Excellent. Um, I think there was another group, like a folk duo, and so the bill didn't make any sense and a right. bunch of local people came out Beautiful. and we had this moment at the end of our set where we had this curtain that we would hold up and then create some kind of visual suspense and the, the curtain would drop and then we would like kick back into like our big closing number. <laughs> and we decided like we needed something really big for this show in Ohio. So we got, um, it was around the 4th of July. So we got these like Roman candle, you know, like aerial fireworks. Oh no. And we, we taped them to a cooler that we traveled with and just used as a gear storage box. <laughs> and this is five years after my, my jazz band thing where I was like incredibly nervous. So here I am as like a late teenager. And I was like, Hey guys, we really need to go for it and like show Kent, Ohio. What's up. So the curtain goes up and we light off these fireworks and the room fills with smoke, the curtain goes down, and the Roman candles are pointed from the stage into the crowd. So we're just shooting the crowd with Roman candles. And I look to my right, and my very, very dear friend, Aaron Saul, is, um, I, I'm looking around through the smoke, and I'm like, oh man, like, what's, what's going to happen? And he has completely taken off all of his clothes. And, and I was like, wow, okay, this is, wow, yeah, we're, we're really going for it. Um, I looked at our drummer and he looked back at me and he was like, well, we're just, I'm going to hit this fill and then we're going to, we're going to do the closer and this is going to be our experience. Oh my god! And I just feel like as a marker of growth, you know, like moving from, uh, I'm terrified to play in the high school jazz band to we're going to play a squad house in Kent, Ohio. 
we're going to shoot the crowd with fireworks and then we're just going to go for it. You know, that's a, that's a big deal. Close optional for some. Uh, that's right. That is a, wow. <laughs> that uh, We'll file that under the don't try this at home kids uh, portion of the show. Please don't. Um, Please don't. Yeah. But that's also, you know, that's kind of cool as a high school teacher to have that in your back pocket in case any of your students ever doubt how cool or bold or brash you ever were when you were a whippersnapper. Tell me about how you got into teaching, though. You know, it was I think it's really just like a a combination of factors. Uh, When I was in high school, I had some teachers who I felt like were maybe not the most effective or, you know, and, and I'll put it on me, too. I just wasn't in a place to really receive what they were offering. Yeah. And I was just like, you know, just, I don't know, kind of confused. I was a confused teen. I didn't really like to read independently. I had a couple experiences, uh, maybe in 10th grade, that were actually pretty positive. And I had this high school drama teacher, her name is Denise Botsky. Mm-hmm. She's still there. And she just, uh, heart of gold, like so passionate, loves, loves her work, loves her students. And I'd written her this letter about an experience that I'd had in class. And I didn't really know how to like verbalize it in front of her. And she, she got the letter, she read it and she was like, okay, clearly this is a person who, who needs some guidance. Right. And I have some knowledge and some experience that could be of use to this young person. So after class, she like, she was like, I need to talk to you in my office. And she was the drama teacher. And she had this like, like mini, um, mini theater classroom, you know, it wasn't like a typical classroom. It was like a rehearsal theater where all the students met. So I went back in her office and she was like, you know, I want to recommend a book to you. And, and she opened up this like creaky metal cabinet and it was filled with play scripts, but they were not the plays that she would loan out to other students. And I was like, oh, wow, this is like the secret stash. And she was like, yeah, this is the stuff that I can't, I can't loan out to you. I'll, I could get in serious trouble because the content is so, so mature. Oh, she pulled this, this play out and she showed it to me and she was like, I need you to read this. And I was like, okay, well, what, how am I supposed to get it? And she was like, you need to find it somehow, but I can't give you my copy. Oh. Um, I could get in trouble. And quite frankly, if you tell anybody that I recommended this to you, I'm just going to deny it. And I was like, wow, this is cool. That's this cool. is like really exciting. So anyway, it took me a little while. They didn't have it at my local library. Unfortunately, it was, a, it was like a newer play that had been published, uh, but it was uh, a copy of a play called Suburbia by Eric Bogosian, which was made into a, a, mo- a Richard Linklater movie, That's I think right. in the early 90s, starring Steve Zahn. That's right. But anyway, the play is, uh, for anyone who's not familiar, it's a, it's a story about like disaffected teens who grow up in a, in a, 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 a suburb and they want, they all want to get out, but they're all just so like broken and they're struggling with their own kind of insecurities and their own limitations. And it, the ending is so powerful. And it was the first experience that I had where I was like, wow, this is really, this speaks to me in a way that, that nothing I had read previous to that has really spoken to me. And then, you know, uh, to get back to your original question, graduated from high school, I went to school, I went to college and my freshman year, I was like, you know, really getting serious about thinking about, you know, what I wanted to do or what I like to do or how to translate stuff that I really cared about into a career. And I, I think that that particular moment, there were a couple others that were also really powerful, but that particular moment left a, a real laft- lasting impression. And I decided that I wanted to go into, you know, secondary ed and be, be a high school English teacher. The chance to connect. That sounds really awesome. The chance Those to relationships can be really, really powerful. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to this day, I'm friends with and still have fond recollections of the one single math teacher who was able to reach me and you know we're friends to this day and it, you're right you're absolutely right that it lasts um, yeah that's great yeah also he was like a fan of some really geeky comics that i was too and we had that other level 
but uh also great you know also great so but you know i think we just have a half we can't not comment on how hell of a year it's been for teachers um how have you been handling virtual learning and uh do you have any takeaways so far do you have any things to say to people out there who might not be aware of what teachers are going through yeah i mean you know i think i have to imagine a lot of folks probably have some sense of the challenges of virtual learning or maybe even some school districts that are maybe back part-time and just how disruptive that can be on, you know, the regular kind of flow of things. Yeah. Things have been really tough for me. I mean, you know, there are a lot of challenges um, with trying to create an experience and, and really establish those relationships, you know, just like the story I just told is like, you know, the the power of that interaction stems from a relationship and like forming those kinds of relationships when you're entirely virtual, which is uh, what my school is. You know, it's challenging, but it's not impossible. Yeah. So like anything, I think teachers in generally are a re- like a really adaptable bunch. And they're folks who care very deeply about big ideas and, and creating solutions to seemingly insurmountable problems. That is currently what we're doing. And, you know, so far, so good. You know, yeah. so far, so good. We're going to make it work. We're going to get through this. We've got each other's backs. And, you know, I'm uh, involved in a, a teacher group chat with colleagues in my department and you know, a lot of folks are just saying like, man, you know, I'm, I'm working really hard. I'm putting in a lot of hours to try and create this digital content. You know, what, what's going on with y'all, you know, where, where is everyone? And I don't know, just, I, I just felt like it was, it was light to express it, but you know, my, I don't even want to call it advice, but I guess my contribution to the discussion was that, look, you know, this is a very, it's a, it's a tough situation, but it's also a kind of Wizard of Oz situation. You know, like everything you need to to take this journey, everything you need to get through it and to make it back home is a thing you already have. And if you if you don't realize that you already have these skills or this energy, you're going to meet friends along the way who will awaken within you these skills that you have or this energy that you have. And then, you know, you're you're going to make it through. Right on, man. Yeah, I have to and just have to say my favorite human beings on the planet have always been librarians, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. nurses and teachers. And uh, this year, especially when it comes to the departments of nurses and teachers. Wow. I'm just continuing to have nothing but admiration. Artists and musicians come forth. You guys are fourth. You're also you're on my list twice, John. That's cool. Uh, I will I will accept any and all praise. And I will also reflect it back onto librarians. Um, I will also reflect it back onto uh, health workers. Yeah. Heck yeah. 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 Sending love. We love y'all. Yeah. I want to I, I do have a theory that like I feel like we live in the last five to 10 years, especially adults are as guilty as this as as teens are. We're used to like watching a show or a movie on our home television and like realizing that that's just a screen that we don't have to engage with. And so we're like, we're reaching our hand up to look at our smartphone because we don't really have to pay attention to stranger things. We can look at our phone. And and I worry that that might be happening to teachers that the teen brain might be thinking, oh, Mr. John Duffy's just a TV show. I might be able to like have my eyes drift away. So my theory is if you maybe dress up, like maybe wear like a, a, a Devo flower pot on your head or just mm-hmm. anything that will just keep their eyes glued on you, a blue clown wig, maybe I just, you know, keep their, keep their eyes on you. Sure. Just I mean, a- <laughs> uh, it's certainly, it's certainly worth a shot. I'll, I'll try anything at this point, but yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of the work is really just, you know, we like our schedule right now, we're, we're doing 90 minute blocks classes every other day. Right. So, you know, a lot of the work that we're trying to do is just kind of short, short tasks. Yeah. You know, if I can do like a, 
a very quick, you know, kind of skill building lesson or something for 10 or 15 minutes. And then students can work in groups. We come back, we debrief, and then they have a big chunk of that time for like kind of self-paced work or independent work where they can check in with me if they need me. But it's, you know, obviously you're, it, it is not a situation where you can just talk to somebody on Zoom for 90 minutes, especially right. a teenager. Right. And I wouldn't want that either. I'm 37 and I, I don't want to do that. Right. Well, let's switch gears entirely um, and talk about gear. Let's talk about some musical equipment. Um, yes. So let's I, do it. you know, I knew you as a guitarist, but then especially over the last uh, seven or eight years, which leads into you creating music for this podcast, you became an analog synthesizer guy. Tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of, I, I'm not entirely sure that there was one specific moment. I, I mean, like a lot of folks who I think are into synths and, and, you know, maybe eighties culture, new wave, new wave punk music, um, or experimental music from the seventies. I was really into Devo, uh, growing up as a teenager, there was just something about them, like the, just the entire package, you know, they had this kind of zany tongue in cheek approach, but they also had a, a very serious philosophy about right. the world. And they wanted to tell you about it in a way that was kind of silly, but also really serious. And they made these incredibly strange, like outer space sounds. And then the more music that I was listening to that was, you know, from the 70s or early 80s that was also really experimental, you would hear these sounds showing up over and over again. And I was like, man, what is that? Like, you know, how does how does that work? Mm -hmm. And so, the, you know, synths were always kind of on my radar, but because I really loved to play guitar and and had some successes in some guitar bands, I never really took it seriously. And in the late 2000s, you know, I was really interested in working in a duo, like a, a synth pop duo. And all of the music that we created was uh, created using what we call soft synths, which are basically, you know, uh, computer programs that will create the synthesizer sounds for you. So it's a, a digital process and you're pushing, pushing buttons, clicking stuff. And that's how the music is made. And I absolutely love that. And it was so exciting to make that music and to interact with people in a fun way. But um, I was also playing in a, a group uh, as a guitar player and that, uh, that project, you know, just kind of ran its course. Mm -hmm. So around 2016 or so I was kind of, you know, looking for a new project, looking for a new thing. And I wanted to revisit synthesizers, but I wanted to do it in a way that was all hardware. Mm -hmm. And I think those roads, the wanting to do it in all hardware, having great experiences in the past with software synthesizers, and then just my love for like Devo and early eighties, new wave bands, and then seventies, like, you know, German cosmic music and stuff like that. All of those things combined just brought me to this point. And I was like, yeah, like I want to, I want to really get serious about this and make instrumental hardware synthesizer music. Yeah. And you, at the very beginning of this interview, you mentioned a uh, quote unquote, uh, my friend, Mark, which mm -hmm. leads to. Yeah. So, uh, my friend, Mark Maynard and I worked together in a, a uh, an instrumental synth duo called Pato y Pato. And we have tons of fun. Uh, we, we play shows. Uh, we've got a web presence. You can Google it and it's a lot of fun. It's taken us some time to just acquire these machines and, and fix them because they break down a lot because they're old. <laughs> and it's just, uh, you know, it's for me personally, it's so satisfying because there's like a math science component. Um, you know, you've got to figure out voltages and you've got to, you know, divide the clock time and try and figure out how to get it to do the thing you want. And then there's also obviously an artistic element where you're sailing into uncharted territory and creating these really exciting sounds. So there's just a lot, a lot of satisfaction there. Which plays into now before we had this pandemic and we were having in-person library events, we were going to have one of our biannual synthesizers in the library event. So we have now 
we've coordinated a scenario where we can do that sort of virtually and John, you're going to be there and this podcast will come out before that happens. And I think it's worth noting that, you know, there are all of those variables when you're trying to work with an analog synthesizer. And this is, I guess, just an opportunity to once again, harp on the fact that I feel like when I was coming up in the 90s and learning about music and watching MTV, that there was a moment where, you know, irresponsible or quick and dirty as this could be, that synthesizer became interchangeable with keyboard. And people imagine that you'll always have a keyboard or something that looks like an electric piano, but that's not always the case with analog synthesizers. You just made it sound like coding and computer programming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, I think... You know, for me, especially, it was surprising when I first got into modular synthesis that yeah. there's no keyboard. Right. Um, it's it just a bunch of it's just a, a bunch of patch cables and buttons and knobs <laughs> and stuff, and then you create these sounds. And yeah, you know that's uh, that's really exciting. Yeah. You know, I remember like uh, I used to work at a this fantastic you know punk all ages uh, smoke and alcohol free club in Flint called the Flint Local 432, which is still there and late high school, early college, I would do sound there on weekends. And whenever somebody would come through, you know, we had a lot of like really loud alt rock metal bands, punk groups, whenever somebody would come through with a synthesizer, everyone who worked there was like, Ooh, right. Like, what's that all about? (laughs) And it was exciting, you know, like they, at the time, I, I guess I never tried to get one when I was that age, but at the time they were, they were hard to get, they were hard to figure out how to use. And now that we have the internet and YouTube, you know, you can just go on some classifieds, get one for cheap and watch some tutorials and figure it out. But, you know, that interest has, has been there for a long time. So I'm excited to be able to, uh, you know, take a couple pieces that, that I really love to play and mess with and then share it with, uh, you know, with the Zoom community yeah. um, coming up with synthesizers in the library. That's the, the 26th. Is that right? That's correct. Saturday, the 26th. Saturday, the 26th. Get your reservation now. Tune in. Yeah, man. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. This was my my pleasure. I've I've so enjoyed listening and uh, and I very much appreciate it. Thank you. We've put together more than 40 episodes already using all of your music. So I'm just going to let you give us the lead out for this podcast. Go ahead and take Let's it away. It. You've been listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the Friends Ferndale Library. I've been John Duffy, the mind behind the music that you hear on the intro outro and any transitions you normally hear on this podcast or any virtual video program. Your host has been Jeff Milo, and I was so glad to join him on this podcast today. Now, if you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to ferndalefriends.org. I want to thank everyone for their time and energy today. Have a great day.